and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ultraverse Podcast, Prime of Your Life, a proud member of the Ultraverse Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. And I'm your co-host, David Gutierrez. How's it going, David? I'm fine, Shag. How are you? Dude, I am so psyched about recording this podcast. I, I got to tell you, it's it's a little bit crazy, and it's a little it's bit a awesome. lot crazy. It's a lot, it's a lot crazy, crazy. <laughs> and a little bit awesome. Because, you know, the, the Ultraverse line, I was, I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day, is that you know, 20 years ago, it's completely gone now. There's almost no traces of it other than in the long boxes. Not a lot of people remember it. But, you know, so that's the crazy part, that we're doing a podcast uh, uh, on something that's been gone for 20 years. But it's also awesome because there's so much great sh- stories out there, so much great art. There's a lot of passion, a lot of dedicated fans. And uh, I'm I'm thrilled. And, and the other crazy part has how much it's blossomed. It has exploded. It certainly has. Uh, so we're looking at uh, well, we, for one thing, we we I, could you say we started a network? I guess you could kind of we, say we, that by accident we started a network. <laughs> and uh, so if you first off, if you uh, if you go to the website ultraverse dot com, one word ultraversepodcast dot com, you'll find that this is one amongst a growing number of of blogs and podcasts devoted to the ultraverse. Uh, we have coming up pretty soon, I believe. Uh, a free form improv in the dark, and that is the Nightman podcast, and that's hosted by Ben Avery. There's a Wrath of Aladdin podcast, and that's going to be focused on the, the character Solitaire, and that's hosted by Kane Dorr. We're also looking at a bunch of blogging that's happening. So we have our Strangers blogger. We're probably going to, uh, I believe, Sludge and Firearm are going to start to get some focus. Woohoo! And some writing behind them. And those are going to be brought to you by the likes of guys like Barry Reese, Sean Corey, and David Sopko. So, you know, it's, you're going to have a big world dedicated to, to, the, uh, to the Malibu Ultraverse. It's crazy. We went from zero to 60 in no time at all. I mean, we've got seven folks on this team right now. And I expect it's going to grow. I mean, we mentioned we've got the Nightman podcast, the, the Solitaire podcast. And this one, which is just, we're going to cover a variety of topics on this one. It's never, it's never going to be a set... F- uh, format you know we might talk about trading cards or comics or tv or you know whatever it might be related to the ultraverse we want to that week or that bi-weekly or monthly whatever the schedule ends up being however the network's not done growing i mean i'm hoping to bring on some more podcasts you know if someone wants to podcast about freaks bring it on or if one of the creators you know or one of the publishers behind the scenes of of the ultraverse wants to do their own show and put on the network we would love to have them put a show up on here That would be wonderful. Tom Mason, if you're listening. (laughs) There you go. As we said, this podcast is going to be dedicated to the Ultraverse. If you're not familiar with the Ultraverse, quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure why you're listening to this. But anyway, uh, the the Ultraverse was a shared superhero universe launched back in June 1993. Now, this is a time when there were a lot of universes launching. These were your fully formed sort of boy band you know, universes. Oh well, I mean, think about it. They were fully fleshed out. You know, you had right. your, your image, which actually Malibu was the first publisher of Image, uh, Valiant, Milestone, Dark Horses, Comics Greatest World. All of these were launching about the same time. And as I mentioned, Ultraverse was June 93, which is kind of an interesting time in, in the history of comics because it really straddled the fence between the comic boom and the comic bust. Now, publishers at this time were publishing tons of titles, and retailers were, st- were still ordering huge numbers in 93. However, individual sales were starting um, starting to shrink a little bit. Now, they were still ridiculously high overall, but they were starting to shrink. They weren't growing anymore. The bust sort of snuck up on everybody. So from 1993 to 1997 was a really rough time to be owning a comic shop. It was. Um, but one thing to think about is um, 
the the, the vast uh, amount of books that Malibu ended up publishing. But the thing about them is they didn't really own, own a lot of their properties. Those were already owned by their creators. You had stuff like uh, Dinosaurs for Hire, Protectors, books like that. And they're also known for publishing their primarily licensed characters or or, um, or properties like uh, Deep Space Nine. So this was the first time that Malibu was going to be able to own its own characters and universe. Yeah, and they brought on a bunch of really top-notch writers. They kind of decided for, in the in the plan, they said they wanted to be known as the writer's universe. Because in the 90s, you know, so many publishers were just the big splash, the big, the big fancy art, I guess. Fancy pants. Fancy pants art, exactly. But they yeah. wanted to be known as the writer's universe. And they really held to that quite well, and they brought together a really nice, tight continuity. Right, you can think of it as, a, as very much an answer, the sort of, I guess, mirrored answer to image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, we, we, you know, we, <laughs> the Ultraverse started in 1993, and uh, that was, of course, under Malibu. And then Mal- a weird thing happened in 1994. Marvel ended up buying Malibu, and as a result of that, they canceled the entire Ultraverse line. They relaunched that line with a few titles, with um, an event known as Black September, but that resulted in a pretty different continuity. Um, you saw some crossover with some Marvel titles. And uh, that lasted till 1997. The, the final issue called uh, Future Shock was dated February 1997. So does that mean we're technically doing a Marvel podcast? Uh, you know what? If we do this for two years, that's a Malibu <laughs> podcast. And then on the third year, till the, I, well, till we stop, then that's a Marvel podcast. And then no one talks about us again. And if they do talk about us, they don't talk about us. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... So a lot of people ask, why did Marvel buy Malibu? Shag, I was wondering, um, why did Marvel buy Malibu? Well, here, sit down. I missed my cue. I'm sorry. Sit sit down by the fire. I'll tell you a story. Tell Um, me, Grandpa. A lot of people for the longest time, including myself, thought that Malibu was bought for its coloring department. Because Malibu had a coloring department that was leaps and bounds beyond anyone else out there. I mean, it was really impressive stuff. They were using a lot of... um, Photoshop. Yeah. That was a big deal. They were using programs for anybody else. Well... Turns out that that's, according to a lot of the publishers in more recent interviews, that's not really the real reason. If that's what Marvel wanted, they could have just bought the color, you know, hired the colors themselves. They did not need to hire a department and then later on apparently try and shut it down. So the, the real reason that Marvel bought Ultraverse was that DC Comics was looking at buying the Ultraverse. DC so greed? Was, greed shag? Is that what you're telling yeah, me? Yeah, pretty much greed, yeah. Because <laughs> if DC had bought the Ultraverse, they would have had the largest market share in the comics industry, and Marvel in the 90s sure as heck wasn't going to allow DC to have that. So they swept in, while DC was doing his due diligence to figure out the actual value of Malibu, and DC, uh, Marvel swept in and bought Ultraverse out from underneath them. So, it's kind of an interesting story. Now, another question that comes up a lot is, why doesn't Marvel publish them anymore? Why don't they publish them anymore, Shag? I'm glad you asked that, David. <laughs> You know, some people say, oh, it's because of the accounting nightmare, because when the Ultraverse was created, uh, one of the big things about that was that the um, the individual creators would have a higher stake in the books. They would have a lot more opportunity to do profit sharing. Right. And so, you know, that creates some of the accounting nightmare they th- on paying in the back end. Other folks say, well, it just straight up, it's the marketability. I mean, there's no market right now for a hard case book. He's, he's been out of the limelight for 20 years. No one even knows who he is. You know, Prime maybe could get a series, but anyone else, you know, not really. Um, there's questions about legal issues. You know, Joe Casada said in an interview that it had to do with the initial deal and didn't want to make that uh, dirty laundry public. You know, I read something else recently where, you know, one of the original publishers 
in the deal, perhaps it says that he gets to be a producer or something like that on any product, any media product that's done. So if they made a prime movie, he would get to be one of the producers. And maybe that's some, that's a sticking point. There's a lot of questions out there, but nobody except for Marvel has the answer and they're not talking and we're not going to push for it. It's, it's a dead issue because they all sign non-disclosure agreements. So, so we may never know. We may never know. And you know what? That's, we'll just have to come to terms with that. I, you know, it, it's interesting you bring up the coloring thing. Um, I, I, I forgot to tell you this when we talked about this. Uh, we were talking about doing the show. Uh, I, I saw Ross Ritchie talk once and he said – and he told – he explained to me why that this was ludicrous because he said that at the time when you know, he was working for Malibu, I think he was doing the promotions. He was in the marketing department. The marketing department. He said that if he wanted to hire colorists, all he would do was just invite them to, uh, to a Denny's or something and say, how much is Malibu paying you? I'm from Marvel. Okay, I'll pay you this much more. There you go. That's it. I've I've got my coloring department now. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 an odd rumor. Um, but uh, regardless, we the reason we're here today, or we're going to be here for a while, is because we love this. We, I love the Ultraverse, and I think you do too, Shag. Absolutely. What? So why why are you doing this? Well, why, I why? all right. Why do I love the Ultraverse? This is a good question. Um, first of all, I got to say I'm not an expert. I am not an expert in the Ultraverse. I'm just a fan. There are a lot of experts out there. The guys, um, by the way, this all kind of grew uh, of an Ultraverse Facebook group. Um, right. It's it's a it's a small group, but it's very active, and there are really some amazing guys. And um, anyway, th- so there's some guys out there that just blow me away. The stuff they know, all you know, all the 17 different variant covers of you know Solitaire Number One. I'm wow. I didn't even know there was two. You know, but. <laughs> I'm a fan of it, and I've got a passion for it. I worked in a comic shop back when it was being published. Uh, I used to read books like Prime and Freaks and Firearm, Prototype, Nightman, and Ultra Force. Those were kind of my jams. Those were my favorites. And it's been 20 years since I've read these, and I don't remember much about them. In fact, uh, in Well, getting... I was going to say, I don't think you don't remember things because it's been 20 years. I think you don't remember things because you're pushing 50-something. Nice, nice. Um, not even remotely close, pal, and you're only a couple years behind me. <laughs> Thanks for that. So anyway, I'm uh, a child compared to you. Oh, Jack. whatever, whatever. You could I'm cut you in half and count the tree rings for days. <laughs> All right. So anyway, <laughs> will you shut up and let me talk? The people at home don't want to hear us do That's this. <laughs> okay. Okay. Actually, maybe they do. Maybe they do want to hear us okay. bicker, like a couple old women. Anyway, um, so I, I, reading a lot of these books for this podcast. I'm finding out I don't remember them at all, or I'm reading ones that I didn't happen to read at the time. So I'm, I feel like I'm coming at this as sort of a new reader, so I'm getting a lot of the excitement for the Ultraverse, a lot of the passion and love that I had back then. I, I'm there now. And, you know, when I started reading Ultraverse back then, I felt like I was getting on the ground floor of, like, a new Marvel Comics. I felt like yeah. this is going to be something I'm going to read for another 20 years, these characters. For three years. Or two. <laughs> <laughs> or, right. Or two or three years, exactly. Yeah. What about you? Why do you love the Ultraverse? Why are you here besides the fact that I made you do it with me? Um, well, there's the paycheck, right? And then there's the, for, for the podcast. Um, and yeah, then you, there's... You, you probably shouldn't try and cash that, by the way. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for the big lucrative Marvel deal. <laughs> um, I don't know if you ever went through this, but I kind of... I fell out of... Com- I've fallen out of comics a couple of times in my life, right? It's kind of... Um, I guess I've relapsed. This I, I got into the Ultraverse at a, at a time right after my first break from comics. I'd gotten out of host, uh, out of high school, and uh, went to college. Started dating this girl, and that's where my money was going. Right to mm-hmm. uh, to to having fun with with the ladies and uh, or lady as maybe as the case was. There were some new issues out, and uh, they. 
the low there was low numbering and there was these, I, I remember the first book i got it was um I think it was Mantra 4 or 5, and uh, I flipped through it and I saw this great Terry Dotson art. I saw that it was, you know, it was it was a low number, and it was amongst a bunch of other books that had really low numbers, and I saw names like, like Bray Fogel. Um, Firearm caught my eye, and it just felt like, yeah, this is this is something new. This is, this is the beginning of something, and it doesn't have a bunch of clones in it, and I'm reading part 20 of a 90-part series or <laughs> – or like the X, like the X Men was so dense. Not that it's not, but at the time, I I just I just felt like I don't even know these guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, and I didn't know these guys. I didn't know these Ultraverse guys. But there there was something familiar about them, but different enough that it kept me reading. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. I um, it just was so exciting. It just you couldn't help but be so into it. And they had they were across so many different marketing platforms too. I mean they they had the trading cards and the comics and the tv commercials and the movies and all and the toys and all this and it just I'm a, i have a marketing background so that stuff just fascinated me now one of the things that, that i probably want to need to put this out front as sort of a, like a disclaimer um on the, on these podcasts we are definitely going to celebrate the ultraverse but to be fair we're going to have a little fun with it too um now we're let's be fair these comics came out in the 90s all right i mean yeah. we're talking about the era of ridiculous body proportions and you know extreme everything Ponytails. <laughs> That's right. Uh, pouches. So, while we might poke, while we might poke fun at it or be critical at times, you know, know that we're doing it out of love for the material. We recognize that the amount of hard work that went into creating these books, you know, the writers, the artists, the colorists, editors, publishing staff, everybody involved worked very hard to produce excellent comics and characters that were going to last. Some of these folks were doing it to make money to you know pay the rent the next week. Other folks were doing it hoping that these characters were going to pay for the retirement. So we respect all their efforts, their work, their professionalism. But think of this podcast as hanging out with some buddies and occasionally giving each other a hard time. You know, sometimes it might, we might give constructive criticism. Other times we might be, you know, it might be like we're picking on your buddies for a laugh. And sometimes, you know, a book, while it, it, it sold well, it, it just may not have been the book for us. So right. um, don't take anything we say too seriously. Let's have fun with the material because that's what we plan to do. Well, we're going to try. Um, and as you said earlier, with this, so this grew out of that Facebook group. That uh, we, I really just joined maybe a month ago or a month or two, um, and uh, it's it's really great to be amongst all these hardcore fans, these collectors, and um, and 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 you've, I think you've started doing this, um, Shag. That you've been talking to some of the some of the creators, some of the guys behind the Ultraverse themselves. So it's 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 amazing that yeah, like you said, this just uh, this just keeps going. Well, you know, Stephen Boyd, he's the guy who founded that Ultraverse fa- Facebook group. He said to me one time, he said, uh, it's the death of a universe that the fans won't let die. I like that. You know, it sounds it, cool. It's pretty accurate. I mean, considering this was – the Ultraverse was – when you think about the, the history of comics, it was kind of a blip. And, uh, you know, it was it was here. It, 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 came, it kind of just exploded and then it was just gone. But it's really nice to be in – I think it's great that we're possibly in touch with guys like Tom Mason, Dave Ulbrich, Roland Mann, Jer- Jerome K. Moore, James Hudnall. Um, I think just today a couple other guys might have joined the yep. uh, the Facebook group. Gerard, so, jo- Gerard Jones was looking around at Ultraverse stuff on Twitter the other day, so it's kind of exciting. I think it's great. It, as, as you said earlier, that it being sort of the writer's the writer's universe. So if you were a fan of guys like Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, Mike Barr, Gerard Jones, as you mentioned. Um, and then there, there was a, I, I guess you could call him a buddy young writer at the time who was just starting out James Robinson. This was kind of, this was kind of the place to be, I think. And if you, cause all those other guys had cut their teeth on, on, on Marvel and DC and, uh, 
I think they're it's probably like Warrior Comics and whatnot. And then uh, if you were fans of artists like Norm Brayfogle, Paul Pelletier, uh, Rick Hoberg, you got to see you got to see these guys in a, in a new medium, not a new medium, but t- tackling new characters. And you got to see characters designed by guys like Dave Gibbons, your favorite Walt Simonson, my Ooh. favorite Howard, Howard Chaikin. You got to see uh, you got to see the start of guys like Aaron Lepresti, Derek Robertson, Terry Dodson. So it, it was a really interesting time to just kind of. I, like I said, Ultraverse was great because you, it was the beginning of, of, of this whole thing. And um, one thing that I guess I guess we'll probably talk about this on, another, on a later show, but certainly just briefly touch on today is the collector's market of it all. It was the 90s, so you had things like the hologram covers. You had some innovative things that I don't think uh, other companies did, like um, collecting certificates to mail away for an issue. Um, the first six issues of Solitaire's covers built – I think the first page of Solitaire Six, stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, now, now those hologram covers. Um, you know, I understand. No, there's, there's people. We're not out, talking about that. I understand. There's people out there still seeking these things out. Is that correct? Yes, Shag. There are people who, yes, who buy the gold stamped yeah. hologram covers to yeah. comics. That, one, one of which we may be reviewing today, called Strangers. That, well, yes. It, it, By the it, way, has that arrived? I, I was going to say, have you I, got it yet? <laughs> no, no. Okay. I got I got to know how it looks. I'm dying to Maybe know. Maybe the whole thing's just a hologram. Like, I'm never going to get oh. it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so thank you for making this hit my wallet. No problem. <laughs> um, and, oh, but speaking of things that hit your wallet, uh, there are uh, there, there was a series of trading cards that Malibu put out <sighs> that I believe somebody just uh, lost uh, – I don't know. I don't, I'm going to say a small fortune. Probably your. I, I I believe you said you cashed out your 401k, and your kids are. <laughs> your, your kids have to go to a state school now, for uh, for these things. Yeah, I I am just in the last two weeks the proud owner of um all three sets of the Ultraverse trading cards. It, it it all happened in one night. It just came over me, and uh, it was it was like it was 1994 all over again. I had to have the cards, and just boom, 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 bought them. I. I haven't opened them yet. Uh, they're sitting here next to me, sealed boxes. At least two of them are sealed boxes. One of them is a set. But I think I'm just going to do it like a junkie one night and just tear through them and then lay amongst the foil wrappers and cry and weep because it's over. Daddy, why do I have to work four jobs to go to college? Ultraverse! <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it's going to be. You're a, God, you're a father, Shag. So you're are you! <laughs> yeah. And there's okay. well, well, supposedly I I need to talk to your <laughs> wife about that to be sure. But anyway, so the, I mean, there's chase cards in these boxes and everything. Yeah. I mean, they really knew how to play the collector market, and it worked in their favor. You know what? I I don't think that the one thing that I don't think these guys did was pogs, but S- I could be wrong. The, I, if they didn't, smart move. That was that oh. was. A, <laughs> that was I oh, wish they had done more licensing apparel. There's a couple different shirts out there. I, I think, watches. I, I think a Prime watch or something. Oh God, really? You're saying there was one or there should be one? You say what's the Prime? And I don't oh, know. what's the Prime? Gosh. Prime of our lives. <laughs> no, but uh, they they also did uh, an animated series. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a. Uh, I think it lasted a season yep. for the Ultra Force. Uh, there were toys, and along with these toys, of course, along with the collector's market, came with uh, Chase Chase figures or rare figures that had. Um, there was like the, with the the uh, black label edition or All something. All right, like that. I know what you're getting at. Fine. Speaking of shopping, let's see. I got my box right here. Just came in yesterday. <laughs> uh, I have. I just got the prototype action figure. He looks totally boss. I got the hard case action figure, which yes is on the black card. Uh, I forget what they call it. It's like 
Ultraverse 504 or something like that. I don't remember. Um, it's where we need a collector to tell us these things. But anyways, it's hard case. What's he called? Uh, just Ultra Hero hard case. Then I've got a Nightman action figure, which looks awesome. I've got a Prime, which I can't wait to get out of the box. i got a Ghoul that just kind of came with a set. Um, enemy. And then I have another black card, a variant Nightman called Shadowfire Nightman. So I'm actually really looking forward to seeing this. You know, when I, when I got these, my... Um, my my 15 year old son stepson he you know he st- immediately you know he gravitated was like what's that started going through him and he kind of got into it man and then he passed out from hunger oh we stopped that no like um it just i thought it was neat because you know comic books i always think regardless that i'm an old man reading comics i think comics should be for kids and to see oh, yeah. to yeah. see him get Agreed. excited about these characters i mean he really gravitated towards prime which is perfect you know he's, he's, he's kevin's age he's right. kevin green's age exactly yeah. and um then i had him read i had this ultraverse preview book i don't actually know what it's called because there's no indicia but it basically is one page per book and it tells you like a tells you a little tidbit about each book that's coming out this is before the before june 93 and uh he was reading through that and he was really digging it and like asking me questions about the characters and stuff and i was like you know what 20 years later even with all the 90s isms in there it still has an appeal which is great well, now I guess it, it, it might be able to carry some, I guess, a kitschy element because it's been so many years. Well, he doesn't care about that. Retro, oh, that's re- true. Yeah, retro he won't look at it ironically, will he? Re- retro yeah. to him is 2012, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. We are so old. We're old men, Shag. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, I'll tell you how old we are. Uh, Malibu had a film division and a game division. They put out a uh, a prime game for uh, a system that no longer exists. Sega Saturn, I think it was. Sega it? Saturn, yeah. They had, and, they had uh, another one in development. Uh, for who? Firearm. Oh, they did? Yeah. A first person? I, there's a whole webpage dedicated. I'll have to go out and read it. I don't know. Uh, they also had TV, which was great. They had TV commercials that that uh, that were hyping the books, and they did something that I don't think anyone's done. Especially now, you you would think that this would be far far more prevalent. But uh, there was a hard case short. I'm sorry, hard case short. There was a there was a hard case short film that was done to drum up interest for retailers, and then there was a firearm video comic book combination. It was on VHS, mm-hmm. Firearm Number Zero. You uh, you watch the short film and then you finish the story in the comic. Awesome, awesome. And sir, I found mine just the other day. I was pretty sure I knew where it was. I, I have a whole crate of uh, or not crate, but like a like, Tupperware bin of VHSs under the bed because like I couldn't bring myself to throw certain ones away. And sure enough, I, I looked in there. Firearms zero, number zero. I pulled it out. I got it sitting next to me. And what color is the uh, what color is the cassette? It's red. Good memory. I love sir. that. Good I memory. love that. And uh, firearm red. I'm not saying that I ordered a VHS to digital transfer device, but I'm I'm not saying I didn't either. Did you do you remember seeing it? Yeah, I always I watched it. You know when I bought it. Oh, it's not okay. It's been I, a I, long you know, time since I watched it. Now I'm, it's sitting right. I, I still have a VCR actually, primarily because I have a bunch of kids. All right, not a bunch. I have two kids. You're in Florida. That's your that's your uh, that's your PlayStation. <laughs> Florida, God's waiting room. Um. I have, I still have a lot of VHS tapes because when the 15-year-old was little, you know, he had these videos he watched, these Disney videos and stuff like that, and the 8-year-old likes to watch some of them sometimes, so we just keep the VCR, figure what the heck. Anyway, so I plan on watching it sometime soon. All right, well then maybe maybe that could be a show. That'd be fun. We could talk about it, yeah. So, 
All right, folks, well, this show, this particular episode, we've got a plan here for you. For these first two episodes of the Ultraverse podcast, Prime Your Life, we're going to review all the number one issues from the first six months of the Ultraverse. So that means uh, there's basically just 12 books in total. We're going to cover six issues this episode, six issues the next. Uh, This really is making this episode a bumper-long episode. So I sort of apologize for that in advance. Normally our episodes are not going to be this long, but... um, you know, what are you going to do? It's the first one. Give us a break. So all of these number one issues have a cover price of $1.95. And I was looking at, you know, I wanted to see comparatively if, with, with where that fit in the market. So I looked at the June 1993 comic book prices. I looked at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which, by the way, is a great site if you've never visited it. And really gives you an idea of the whole comic market at the time. And I, I wanted to see what the average price was. Now, again, these were $1.95. Um, you started reading comics when they were, what, $0.12, cents, I think? Uh... Yes, to your nickel comics. Right, right. <laughs> My yellow kid collection. Um, uh, uh, what happened in Pogo? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, in in the newsstand, all right, so newsstand comics back then. So, Ultraverse is $1.95. Newsstand comics, which is your Marvel and DCs, which are like your Captain America's, Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, Batman, JLA, Green Lantern, the stuff you can find at the spinner racks, those were running at this time at $1.25. Um, your direct market books which would be Marvel's like Marvel UK, Alpha Flight, Moon Knight, Green, DC's Green Arrow, Shadow of the Bat, Black Canary, the stuff you could only get in comic shops, those were going for $1.75. Now, if you step up to DC Vertigo or Image, uh, Savage Dragon, Spawn, Cyberforce, all that, they were going for $1.95. So that's the same price as, as uh, um, Ultraverse. That's pretty reasonable. And Valiant was actually even higher. Valiant was anywhere from $2.25 to $2.50. So, reasonably priced. And um, now the Ultraverse content in the number one issues they did vary some issues were had 24 pages some had 28 pages so it's you know kind of kind of in flux but um it, you know it's averaged out around there's still more than you get in, in a comic nowadays now for the for this first episode um we're going to cover prime hard case strangers freaks exiles and mantra next episode we're going to cover firearm prototype solution nightman sludge and solitaire as as to the pricing, I just want to say I I, uh, I I was telling my mom about I was kind of telling her about this, and she found she found a, a pay stub and uh, just to put in perspective the minimum wage at the time was four twenty five, <laughs> so so, then, so every comic was about a half hour of work. There you go, perfect. <laughs> Jesus, oh. Okay. All right, well, you know what? With that, let's let's get on to talking about these comics. All right. Why don't you kick it off with Prime Check? Absolutely. So your creators were Len Straczynski, uh, uh, Gerald Jones. Those were your writers. Your artist was, uh, and cover artist was Norm Brayfogel. Your editor was Chris Ulm. And the character designs, and I didn't know this until doing research for this podcast, the character designs for Prime was by Brett Blevins. I had no idea. I just assumed all this time that it was uh, Brayfogel. I thought it was Brayfogel, too. Yeah, I had no idea. So, just looking at the cover to start with, it's a, it's this really boss image of Prime. He's holding up a number one finger, like he's number one. And um, it, the anatomy on Prime, if you've never seen Prime, and again, if you haven't, I don't know why you're listening to the show, but his anatomy is insane. He's got like 30-inch biceps, but his hands are sort of normal proportion, his head's normal proportion, but his body's like super overinflated. It looks ridiculous. It's a guy now, you find in muscle and fitness. No, it's a guy you Times find in two. muscle and fitness. Yeah, it's a guy in Muscle and Fitness who's had a straw stuck in him and they inflated him. On steroids. Yeah. And (laughs) now if someone didn't know the gimmick of Prime, 
it, the cover honestly might have been a bit off-putting. You know, they might have looked at that and said, oh, geez, another, you know, crazy art or something like that. And I'll also say that from the cover, it, he looks a little off. You know, he doesn't look quite like where Bray Fogel had eventually developed the character in the interiors. The character is a lot more developed. So I, I wonder if maybe the cover had been done early, maybe for promotional purposes. Right. Because that image of Prime is u- was used in all the early promotions. Right, that so, in Hardcase 1. Or, yeah. yeah. So I wonder if that was drawn far in advance of the series. Because, I mean, it's still a nice image. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking it. But it's just not as maybe refined as Bray Fogel would make it look inside or stylized maybe. So, All right, here's the recap. The book opens on our hero. He's threatening and slapping around a junior high school gym coach. Prime accuses the coach of molesting his teenage female students. And the coach is sort of narrating the situation. He's basically saying that Prime didn't know his own strength, his own toughness, nor how to fight. Prime then incapacitates the coach by snapping his arm. It's nasty. After that, there's sort of a weird moment where we see Prime desperately trying to convince one of the teenage girls that he is her protector. The scene changes, and now we're back with the coach again, and he's all bandaged up. It's obviously much later, and he's being interviewed under really bright spotlights. Like, you know, he's being, it's almost like an interrogation, but he's just being interviewed, asking questions about Prime. And uh, being, he's being interviewed by this strange, mysterious voice. After the coach leaves, the strange, mysterious voice also uh, indicates that the coach, being the, you know, this pedophile, was being radiated during the entire interview, and that sex won't be an issue for him going forward. Um, nice way to handle a pedophile. So, next, in, The next interview was this crack dealer. He comes in, he talks about how Prime smashed up his drug house, how they shot Prime with uh, machine guns just repeatedly, and how his body actually spat out the bullets along with some goop that came out of him. In fact, the crack dealer brags about having some of this goop in a vial around his neck. Then the mysterious voice wants to buy the vial, they, they argue about price, and the mysterious voice just decides to electrocute and murder the, the drug dealer. He goes to take the vial, and we now see the mysterious figure. He's revealed to be apparently a government official who's conducting an investigation. Then we see some scenes of, uh, on television where they're talking about the new Ultra Heroes. We see Al Baker, who writes for Ultra Monthly, which actually was a real-world publication put out by Malibu. Uh, th- this TV scene really serves as a great introduction to Hard Case and Prototype. Makes me, I think that, pr- that because of that, Prime is probably the ideal book to start somebody on. Because you get some pieces about Hard Case, you get some pieces about Prototype, it gets you a flavor for the whole universe. So this government investigator guy is watching all this, and he basically says that Prime doesn't really understand what he himself is, and that Prime is starting to show signs of instability. Scene changes, we see Prime in Somalia. He's trying to help this convoy humanitarian relief uh, efforts. The, the supplies reach the intended people, but they're being stopped by terrorists. So Prime just tears through these terrorists. But he ends up sustaining lots of injuries. In fact, Prime starts to melt. He gets out of there. He flies away. He goes into a, I don't know. Having re- just reread number one, I don't know whether he's gone to a place he knows or just is an abandoned building, whatever. But he three pages of Prime's massive body melting, and eventually it reveals inside of Prime is a very young kid who's about thirteen years old, and that's how the issue ends. Now, just talking about number one, obviously we know the future history of Prime, but let's just talk about it sort of like looking at number one as a standalone if you were to read it for the first time. What would you think? I like, you know, I have to say it was a pretty solid issue. I mean, it, it definitely, what I liked about it was how um, you don't you don't really see Prime from Prime's point of view for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, while, it, while it opens with him uh, attacking the gym coach, you, meet, I mean, you, you get no sense of who he is except through other people's opinions and... Uh, 
and uh, and and recollections until the very end when you see oh there's this, it's just a scared little kid, but uh, no I thought it, I thought it was pretty I thought it was pretty solid I it definitely would I would definitely want to read the second issue to see who this Kevin kid is and why he's pouring out of this uh, anatomically really um, humorously huge dude right who's super strong has well who's really just sort of the and obviously really just the epitome of what you would think. A, a man should look like when you're 12 or 13. Yeah, exactly. Raised, exactly. raised in the 90s. <laughs> oh, I like that too because, uh, first of all, the art was just breathtaking. Ray Fogel's art was so gorgeous in this book. It was. And Prime's ridiculous proportions, there's a nice contract between, contrast between Prime and all the other people in the book because the other people in the book are drawn with normal anatomy. And so you can see, like, if you just watch the cover... You're thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be a book full of people with crazy proportions. But when you get in, you realize, oh no, just Prime, he looks ridiculous, you know? Um, I talked about the, you know, the small head, the hands and the feet and everything, but the huge biceps. And um, in fact, I noticed in a couple of the early pages, he's got really squinty eyes, which, right. you because know, he's a, if you want to talk about What does that remind you of? Well, yeah, the analog, who he reminds me of is Captain Marvel, you know, Shazam. Billy Bassett and Shazam, the, the primary difference being that Kevin doesn't gain any additional adult intelligence when he becomes Prime. Right. And so having Prime with the squinty eyes in the first couple pages made me wonder if that was sort of a nod to uh, classic Captain Marvel. Loved it. So, um, I like, again, he's 13 years old. I love some of his dialogue. He talks about the Prime Directive and the Prime Lesson and all this stuff. Cracked me up. Kind of like a flash fact. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of kind of. But just the kind of stuff a 13-year-old would do. They would love to do play on words with their names, you know? And what I, you know what I liked about it was all his actions were very much as though he learned them through comic books. Like, this, mm-hmm. oh, this is clearly what a hero does. Right. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, there, well, there, there's no subtlety to anything. <laughs> it's really just, yeah. it's just uh, kind of stupid brute force. It's really, you know, it, 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 I thought it played well. Well, he did some of the power stunts from comics, too. Right. He did the spinning that Superman does, you know, when he wants to drill a hole through the ground or whatever or just knock everything over. And then he also did, like, the Hulk thunderclap, which is great. Which doesn't work. Not in real life, but it did for, did for Prime. <laughs> so, all in all, I agree. Um, loved number one. Thought it was very compelling, and it would definitely bring me back for number two. And, in fact, in 1993, it did. So you bought this. That's right. You bought this. Prime was one of my books. I kept going. I kept with it. All right. All right. So, by the way, we should have mentioned we're just doing these books sort of real quick, rapid fire, sort of a high level, um, so that, you know, just to get through all of them. And also, we want to leave room so that if, you know, we decide to do an episode on, oh, I don't know, hard case at or some point. Or firearm. Or firearm. That we're not, it's not around, we've already covered. Right. Was that you shooting the firearm? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. I loved it. Uh, Listen, I, that's my, okay. So, hard case. Hard case. Um, we, we start in the distant past of 1992, and we, <laughs> and, uh, and, and we're mid battle of a group called the Squad, and it's Hard Case. Uh, this guy named Star, uh, this guy named DJ Blast and Forza, and they're in a horror. It's at the very end of a horrible battle with a creature that we'll learn is later named NME, and he looks a lot like HR Giger's alien. Oh yeah. Hardcase and Starburst make a break for it. Starburst um, is, is Hardcase's girlfriend. She's she's in a coma. Hardcase is really, really the only "quote unquote" survivor and the guy who's okay out of this battle, but it's clearly left him really shaken. We fast forward a year. Hardcase is a movie star, and uh, he's he's in he's in the middle of making a movie, 
when he hears some gunshots taking there's a bank robbery taking place nearby uh he's in he's in the middle of talking with this uh really washed up uh kid actor turned adult you could say he's very cory like more <laughs> more probably more Haim than feldman i don't know how i don't know where how you punch your card if you punch at feldman or Haim, but very very much in that vein so he fights and so so he goes he he doesn't want any any part of this anymore shack he doesn't want to be a hero anymore but of course he gets pulled back in abandons his 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 uh his job as a movie star and goes to f- take on this guy named headknocker the evil ultra ro- bank robber <laughs> they pull him back in he keeps getting pulled back in that never happens but it happened this time <laughs> And uh, one thing you should note is while right before the bank, right, right dur- before the bank robbery occurs, you're introduced to a character named Anton Lone. Um, he's you don't really get to know a lot about him in this comic, but you'll know about him much later. And this is really much like your um, much like dimensions of other heroes in Prime. This is where they start to seed the Ultraverse in ways that you really not you really don't expect them to yet. Is that the guy that wants to take all the money out of the bank? Yeah, yeah. Ah, I didn't realize that. Okay. Anton Lone. I'll give you a little hint. His initials A, last name Lone. A Lone. He's not taking out a loan, but he wants to be alone. So just like, think about as that. As if you play a card game by yourself, perhaps? Yeah, just like that. Okay. wonder what card game you might play by yourself that'll have its own podcast on this network. Hmm. I don't know. Pi Gal. <laughs> Pike out the podcast. Uh, so then... Um, Mahjong! Mahjong! <laughs> so he fights this guy named Hardknocker, who is very much what you ex- what you would expect from a 90s villain. Isn't it Headknocker? I'm sorry, head. What did I say? You said Hardknocker. Hardknocker. He knocks really hard on the door. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Have you heard the good news, Shaq? No, so he's a... <laughs> cool. So he's got, you know, he's, he's got the ponytail. He's got the... Sh- oh, he is... He's... He is 90s. But you know what? So is... So is... um. So is Hardcase, who I'm, I'm sorry I forgot to describe as a, a big blonde buff guy with a slicked back ponytail. He's dressed in Laker colors, gold and purple. He has uh, he has uh, bracelets that are made of chain. He's very he looks like a WWE guy, really. <laughs> and uh, but he's got a heart of gold. And uh, so anyway, and he, take, he takes shoulder pads of gold and shoulder pads of gold. <laughs> he kind of flaunts it, right? And, and so, yeah. so anyway, he uh, he and Hardknocker engage in in kind of a typical battle in the middle of Los Angeles, and uh, and then that's being witnessed by this guy, this mysterious naked man who watches a lot of television, in in a cave, and uh, <laughs> he then calls back to the beginning of the book, Uncle Fred. <laughs> you can, I I believe he's uh, he plays a larger role. And uh, in, uh, in in you know in the future of the of the, ultra, of the ultraverse, but he says that his enemy his his uh, his his agent NM hyphen E failed, can't let that happen again, and then the book's done. So we're we're left with Hardcase coming back from from this from this horrible ordeal that he faced a year ago, and he's uh and you know it's, it, it's fighting time again. One thing that's really notable about the book is the cover by Dave Gibbons. And you see a, a strong man flinging a car, yelling catch. Very, I would say, very evocative of Action Comics number one, where you see a guy holding a car above his head with a similar power level. Yeah, I don't think that's even remotely coincidental. 
you know, Prime is, you know, if you want to talk about the, the analog, or right. who does he remind you, Prime is designed, I, I believe, to remind us of Superman at that Golden Age power level. You know, he leaps, he's super strong. He's bulletproof. You know, he's bulletproof, but, it but hurts. maybe not. Maybe not, you know, missile-proof. You know, he's, he's, he's still very powerful, but not at, like, Bronze Age Superman level, but right. more Golden Age Superman level. Right. So he's, and he's definitely, as he's sort of the... Um, He's also, I would say, the first hero of the Ultraverse. And, and I don't mean in publishing history. I mean in the history of the Ultraverse. He's their, he's their first guy. Well, he came out in 92 versus 93. So right, yeah. right, right. And that's, again, in, in the context of the story, not in actually publishing. So. Right. I, I thought, as far as just reading the issue number one by itself, you know, t- again, taking it on its own merits, I thought it was a very well-constructed story. Um, yes. I liked the flow of the squad and then the tragedy and then the retirement and then the road back to redemption. Right. He felt like a flawed Superman. You know, I thought that was pretty cool. I and, thought that – go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say I neglected to uh, to mention the creative team behind the book. Uh, this was James Hudnall uh, who wrote it and Chris Callahan was a penciler. Norm Bravefogel inked it, which is pretty unusual. Yeah, I, uh, for I would say for Norm Bravefogel to ink somebody else's work, and it kind of shows. Um, I don't mean that it's unusual, but you do see hints of Bravefogel's work or mm-hmm. um, his style, I should say. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Hudnall did a pretty pretty good job of introducing the character. I I, um, I one of the things that was interesting to me about Hard Case the book is I never really th- throughout his publishing history. Hardcase was never one of my favorite characters, but this was always one of my favorite books. <laughs> and and it's not and he really doesn't have that big of a supporting cast. He has supporting character, maybe a couple of supporting characters that come in and out of it. Mm-hmm. But the book was always interesting to me, even though the title character would, didn't always uh, appeal to me. Well, he, let's let's talk about him for a second here. I mean, he, again, we talked about he's like Superman, but he's got like he's, he's like an amalgam of DC's Superman with Marvel's angst. Yes, that's you know, kind of where it goes, and the costume, you know, these and Fabio's hair. Yeah, he's got the huge '90s shoulders pads. He's got lots of shiny gold and metal. The ponytail, the chains. I mean, he just needed some pouches, you know, and he would have been ready to go with the '90s. You know? His costume weighed about a, a thousand pounds. I never thought about the fact that they're Laker colors. That's hysterical. You're probably dead on. I see. When I see purple and gold, I was thinking of peanut butter jelly sandwiches. So you think of the Vikings. What, I think of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Oh, the Vikings, yeah. yes, that's true. They have those colors too. Didn't, didn't you say the Lakers have those? I said Lakers. Yeah, well, it's royal blue, but yeah. Well, you're a you're a you're a West Coast guy, so I. Trust I'm you. in Los Angeles. By the way, we didn't mention that a lot of ninety percent of the stories take place in L.A., which is a huge departure. Or L.A. and the, and and uh, I think there's one in San Francisco, which is a pretty big departure from the big two, and a true. lot of the image books. And what's the name of the company? Uh, I think it's called Malibu. Yeah, so there you go. Kind of, kind of, you know, they're 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 leading it right there. Yeah. No, 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 hiding it. Now, um, you know, I've been complimentary so far. I have a few constructive criticisms. The uh, the interiors you mentioned they're fine. There was a lot of variety of panel designs and stuff, but it was sort of mainly traditional. You know, they, right. they, they didn't take a lot of chances. I felt like with the book, the villain enemy, as ridiculous as the name is, I love it. I love the name. I think that's awesome. NME is a great name. However, the visual, I really couldn't stand it. Because you, it was the alien? Well, it, it was clearly Giger's, or Geiger, however you say it, his alien. Less and, sexed up, though. Yeah, and, and more machine gun. Less wang. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also was not a big fan of Headknocker. I mean, he's so 
slow 90s. You got the long green hair, the sunglasses, the upside down anarchy tattoo, the ridiculous proportions. He just, honestly, he, and maybe this isn't the case. Maybe he became a reoccurring foe of hard case. He felt kind of disposable. Well, he does have his own, uh, he, he is in those trading card series. Well, okay. Yeah, well, if he did launch, I would imagine so. Now, a, a lot of compliments to him, though. They were able to make the sound effect chud work a couple of times. Catabolistic you know? humanoid underground dweller. Thank you very much. So any story that can make the sound effect chud, chud. work, you, gotta, you get my respect. Use it in, a con- use it in context. <laughs> I, do, I can't. I'm not, I'm not perfect. See, I am not the master of writing that Mr. Hudnall was, so I can't do it. <laughs> no, so, but again, a testament, I don't really like um, Hardcase himself that much. I don't find him that appealing, but I love okay. that book. I'm serious. Okay. I love enough. the book. I didn't read it. I, I tried it when it first came out. I didn't stick with it. So I don't. I don't know that I read number one. I don't know where which what issue I read, but I read an issue and it just didn't. It wasn't for me, so I didn't follow it. But here I would say, you know, it was a solid story with some heavy '90s influences. It's well written. Uh, if I just judge on issue number one, I would say there's probably enough character development there to bring somebody back for another issue. Correct. It was 26 pages of story, by the way. Pretty good. Yep. So that was, and again, these were the these were the two of the three inaugural books of the Ultraverse. So this was, they were really, um, they really kind of hit the ground running. I think. Yep. And what's the third inaugural book? The Strangers. Okay. So, so the Strangers was their team book. That was their first team book, and uh, that was written by Steve Englehart, and that was drawn by Rick Hoberg. And uh, so that had characters. I've, I've I found conflicting information on the character designs. Um, oh. That it's I've I've heard it's Holberg, but I've also heard that it's D- Derek Robertson who contributed. You know what? Being that there's so many characters, I wonder if some design, be, some some done the other. Could others. be both, right? Yeah, could be both. Um, uh, Tim Bergen did the inking. Uh, so Strangers is, I would say it has it it has a, the very hard task of 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 introducing. Uh, over five, over five characters <laughs> all at once, and a sixth character that you'll come to know much later. Yep. Um, so any anyway, so this starts in San Francisco. It's 1993. Picture it, San Francisco, 1993, a bustling street in San Francisco. Um, this, this this rich guy is 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 uh, is manhandling his lady in front of a in front of all these bystanders. When all of a sudden a big bolt from the sky comes. And hits the hits the streetcar that they're in, knocks, uh, he kind of affects everyone in the streetcar except for the rich douche guy because he's knocked away before anything happens. But all these people are endowed with superpowers, so you get guys like uh, Hugh Fox, you get guys like Bob Harden, David Castiglione, Leon Balford, ladies like Elena Labrava, and Robot Girl. Candy. Candy. I knew that was her name. <laughs> and it gives them special powers, with the exception of Candy, who becomes aware as the book develops. She's so, got powers, too. Right, but she, her thing is more of an... Okay, yes. She does get electrical powers. Did you read the comic? I did. Are you just reading the Wikipedia entry? No, I'm, I'm reading my synopsis. <laughs> does this sound that bad? No, I'm just messing oh, with you. Oh, you're hurting my feelings. Okay, so, Are you crying over there? A little bit. Crying, it's just smog in your eye. It you know, it's 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 a San Francisco smog. Anyway, um, they're they're all fine, but they all then begin all, all these survivors of this of this lightning 
bolt are are fine, but 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 I'm sorry, of this power striker fine, but they all seem to start exhibiting strange powers. Um, Bob Harden finds that he can transmutate. El- you, you're pretty familiar with this idea, Shag. He can he can it's firestorm <laughs> manipulate, manipulate matter. Uh, Hugh Fox f- finds that he can make things explode out of his chest. Uh, Daglin, David Castiglione finds that he can um, emanate uh, different colors, and with those different colors come different abilities. Uh, Elena Labrava's um, her abilities her she finds that she can um, manipulate her clothing with great accuracy. Uh, Leon. <laughs> It sounds so dirty. Is that wrong? Is that is am I saying that wrong? <laughs> no, it's just when you when you vocalize it, it's just all kinds of dirty imagery comes to mind. Go ahead. Please. Leon finds out how he could run fast, and and the, and then as you were saying, Candy, all of a sudden she gains some sentience. She she she's con she's she's got a conscience. All of a sudden she's like Pinocchio, only a girl, <laughs> and uh, and she's got electrical powers. Um, then there's a storm that 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 happens in the middle of the city. Uh, they all, they all think, oh, this must be the source of our powers or our, or our transformations. And they all, they all gather there and they find that there's a, a black woman who can manipulate the elements named, I'm never quite sure how she, what she's named exactly. I think, I mean, how, how you pronounce her name, but it's Y, Y real. I've always called it Uriel. Uriel. Y-R-I-A-L. Uriel. Uh, Like Ariel, but with a Y. Uriel. Right. So then they find out, no, she's not the one. In fact, we don't really know what's going on. But let's form a team. <laughs> and that's 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 kind of it. Yeah. Um, so, so please tell us. You're you're sort of dancing around it. What what do you think? I well, hang on. There was also another character named Johnny Domino who was introduced. Who um. Who is this Johnny Domino? You'll find tell out. Me more. Tell me more, David G. I don't want to say because we don't really know yet. But he's hospitalized. But he he he's uh he's got long hair, long flowing luscious locks, brown luscious locks. <laughs> he's in a coma. Um, Poor chap. And then there's also G. Lawrence Bushnell and his nurse Henrietta Hawkins, who all of a sudden are okay. They weren't doing well before. He wasn't doing well before, but now he seems like he's in much better health. I, I think we're going to find out more about them later, but we, we don't. Um, how, many we don't people, e- how many people were on the trolley? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, six. About 59. 59. Yes. The number, you see that a lot. 59 strangers, if you will. Right. Sorry. All riding the trolley together. All of them imbued with powers. So we're going to find out, obviously, what happens to everybody else. But this, but this group, this core group, these, these, uh, the the five that were hit by 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 the lightning, as well as Wyriel, decide to form a team, and that's where we're at. And then, and that's where we're left at the end of issue one. Okay. Here's what. Now, it's before, some, well, sorry. before we go any further, we do need to say, please visit the Ultraverse Network blog, which is again ultraversepodcast.com, and there you can see Barry Reese, one of our ultra bloggers, ultra fans is going to be doing his coverage of The Strangers. So you can go out there, check out what Barry's saying about The Strangers. Um, I think he might be doing issue-by-issue issue review. If not, then he's just going to cover The Ultraverse, uh, Strangers as a, as a topic in general. But definitely go there for more ultra, for Strangers coverage. It'll be a much more robust and better review than I'm giving it, because I... Well, let, let, let's just talk about a couple of things that I thought were really interesting about this. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have... It's 1992, and... Uh, I'm sorry, 1993... 
And I would say that sort of the awareness of, uh, of, of, I, I, I wouldn't call it the gay political movement, but you know, you, you definitely have more of an acceptance of homosexuals at, at happening at this time. Sure. So you have this character, David Castiglione, named Spectral, who's, who's, who's gay. And, um, but we learn about it in a really strange way <laughs> where, um, he's told, that he's fine. I hope you're having se- by his doctor. I hope you're having sex, sex so you don't get AIDS. Mm-hmm. So it's a very. I just want to say it's kind of a, a dated progression of thinking. I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. They wanted to communicate he was gay without saying it, and so they chose a certain method, which, unfortunately, you know, they. If you yeah. look at it today, it seems really like, dude. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> but I would sure. say back in the day that that. 20 years ago, if, if our younger listeners, if we have any, might find this hard to believe, but that was, inc- I would say that was incredibly different and um, progressive. Okay. Um, let, let me, let me help you out here. I think I, I can, I think I know why you're struggling a bit. Okay. With the gay and, thing? No, no, no. There's nothing to struggle with, Shaq. I know I'm not. The comic itself. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you questioning yourself? But anyway, um, the, the comic, first of all, here's my take on it. The setup is great. And I mean truly great. I love... This is a TV show. This is a TV show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love all the strangers on the streetcar. I love that. I love that there's an accident. I love those scenes with them discovering their powers. It's really cool. I really dug that part. So up until about halfway through the book, I was all in. It's then that the story began to feel forced. When Uriel shows up and is investigating... There's, they, they jump to a huge conclusion. Exactly. Well, not just them. The cops, too. Everyone's giving her a hard time. All these people give her a hard time just because she showed up. Right. And her, her they say she's this lady in a crazy outfit. It's not really that crazy. And she's in San Francisco. Right. Everybody's That's exactly. cra- like, she, well, yeah. yeah. She's like so, Mardi Gras-esque. Yeah. But yeah, it's San Francisco. So the cops and the media are all crazy about it. Then the six protagonists all decide that they need to return to the scene. Because Uriel's there, which also seemed a bit forced. Right, because why and would she be there of all times? What would you say? Why would she be there of all locations? Well, and then and then they all attack her, which is like really out. She just happened to be there. They attack her. So it was kind of hard to follow that and, and buy into it. Then they see a cloud in the sky and they decide to go investigate the cloud. So what, what it felt like to me, again, just the second, the first half is brilliant the second half it felt a bit like a role-playing game where you have encounter one and encounter one leads to encounter two and you have sort of leaps of logic to get you from encounter one to encounter two encounter two leads to encounter three and it it just sort of felt like that sort of story progression in the second half of the book which may be i think why you're struggling a bit with with, uh, okay yeah it, it you know it did feel like it was just sort of um not sort of. It felt very much as though it was just let's get them to point from point A to point B, so we can yeah. so we can form a team. Yeah. But the idea that 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 there is some mysterious force that has endowed all these people with superpowers. What is it? What's going to happen with the the people that aren't depicted? I mean, that's that's kind of like what I would say heroes sort of stole. Well, I won't say you know what I mean. No, yeah, no, yeah. That's a good idea. There was a big event. Everyone gained powers, and it, the story then becomes the exploration of what all those were. Yeah, those right. other people. So everyone I, I love, hero-wise, except for Grenade. I'm so glad you said that. Because <laughs> I actually have written out here, I, I like, uh, I like Atom Bomb. Uh, as far as their, their hero looks, I like Atom Bomb, I like Zip Zap, I like, uh, Lady Killer, Uriel, Spectral, I like all their looks. I'm not a huge fan of Electrocute's costume. It's kind of generic. You like However, what's in it? 
Well, however, she's a super hot redhead, and I have a real weakness for redheads. I married a hot redhead. So. Shara. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Shara. <laughs> and so, you know, I can kind of get on board with Electrocute, but it's not my favorite. <laughs> however, Grenade, man, that's just some. That's a hard look. That's some crazy, like, Marvel 90s look burst, well, busting through there. What you have is a guy with a, with a flat top. But a kid in play kind of a flat top, but he's white, so that's weird. And and then the the kind of just the half mask where you can where it's covering his nose. I mean, sorry, his eyes and uh, the back of his head, but his nose and mouth are exposed. Then open shirt, like what? Look at this, ladies. Look at this. <laughs> Wearing a vest. I, I would say they're probably black spandex or leather pants, and then the boots. But it's it, like green padded vest and green, green padded, padded like knee braces. It's, it's not for me, man. It's a painful look. But I will say, in general, I really like Rick Hoberg's art in this, though. Like, his art was really exciting. And yes. he's, he's got a natural style. You can tell a make... story. Yeah. The action moves. He's got great panel design. Now, it does include a lot of the 90s tropes, but it does it without being over the top. Like, you know, other artists uh, might have really exaggerated or focused on candy. Because there's a whole, whole scene. Like, most of the books. She's books, in lingerie. She's walking around the laundry, exactly right. But they, it's there, and it's sexy, but it's not the focus of everything. I mean, imagine if Ed Bennett had drawn this, right. you know, nowadays. I mean, th- that would have been all you would have saw for three pages would have been her in the laundry. So, you know, Rick handled it with a light touch, and I think he did a really nice job with it. Right. So, so, so we'll see the guy, speaking of, of Candy, who then becomes electrocute, we'll see the guy that was manhandling her um, later in the Ultra Universe, this guy named J.D. Hunt. He plays yep. a pretty big role. Um in this book, and I think in a few of the others. Yeah. Um, and, then, and and on the top of, of uh, analogs, I felt like this was more of a Defenders book than an Avengers or um, even an X-Men. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the Defenders really had no reason to hang out, but they okay. did. Yeah, and fair the, enough. And the Avengers formed to fight Loki. Yeah. Uh, the X-Men, well, because, you know... Society shuns them, but these these guys just seem to hang out out of curiosity. <laughs> so, I don't yeah. mean that as a bad thing. I just mean that there's uh, two of the characters, uh, Adam, Bob, and Grenade. They're friends, but nobody else really knows each other, and they really just and they kind of fall into a rhythm really quickly um, when they when they kind of group attack Why Why Real or whatever her name is. Um, so yeah, it, it felt more Defenders than anything else to me. And Nate, did did Engelheit write write Defenders? That's a safe bet. I, I can't promise you that, but that's just a safe. I mean, he's got a long, long history career with, with Marvel and DC. So, are you going to follow this book? Would you follow this book? Okay, so twenty eight pages of story. You get lots and lots of story and character development. You really get your money worth in here. Now, again, Lady judging it number one by itself, the first half of the comic was great. It was good. Just not sure the second half of the comic was compelling enough to bring casual reader back for number two. Now, I will say, stepping away from my little rule of just number one, I have read subsequent issues of the book because it was one of the flagship titles of the Ultraverse. So you're no, gonna... str- you're no stranger to this book. Uh, nice, nice. Now, I didn't read them at the time, did not. I mean, in fact, I looked at it and turned it down. But now, in, in my post years, I've been reading it and I've read some subsequent issues and I enjoyed them. So, um, it's not my favorite book in the Ultraverse line, but it's a decent, solid read, so... And it's one of the, I think, one of like uh, two or three team books in the entire line. Yeah. Well, it's a core, it's a core book. I mean, it was there from the launch, you know? Yeah. 
they had high hopes. I, I want to say they even appeared on the Ultra. They uh, did. Um, uh, they were short a couple members, but yeah. Okay. All right. Next book. All right, next book. Freaks. That's F-R-E-E-X. Do not mistake that for free X, please, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have heard some people mistook that for free X. No, it is freaks. Sorry. Free uh, X. Free X, yeah. Right. Uh, David Ulbrich was talking about that in an interview, how some people described it as free X. So. All right, written by Gerald Jones, um, penciled by Ben Herrera. I think I'm going to You got it. All right, Mike Christian, inker. Uh, Walt Simonson did the cover and the character designs. You've got a, a great, great cover by Walt mm-hmm. Simonson. I love it. It's got all the characters running at you. They're plain clothes. They don't wear superhero costumes. They're teenagers. Uh, it's got a very, uh, it's got, I love the bold logo and the action on the cover. And, and I, in full disclosure, I'm a sucker for Walt Simonson. So and, and I was not? Predis- well, true. I was predisposed to like this anyway. Can I, t- the, can I tell you that- what I have? What do, what do you have? I have that, uh, artist edition of, of his Thor. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, man. Simonson is incredible. Like, I've been to a lot of conventions and I've met a lot of artists. He's one I've never had a chance to meet. And, like, I would, I would, I would probably trample a grandma. He's super to... nice. Is he? Oh, man. Wheezy. Yeah, I... She's, oh, my God. You'll just fall in love with her. If you a Wheezy? Meet... Yeah. If you meet... I, what's going to happen is I'm going to, like, go all fanboy on Wheezy for Power Pack. You know, everyone else is going to talk about it. I'm going to talk, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to her about Power Pack and, um, her editing Star Wars for Marvel. <laughs> Which is probably not some, you know, I doubt she talks about that too often. But anyway, all right, nothing to do with this book. So, but freaks. Here's the, here's the elevator pitch for freaks because I really feel like this was an underrated book. I'll I'll be real hmm. upfront. This is one of my favorites in the line, guys. Um, it's a story of superpowered teenagers on the run, stealing to survive, feeling alone and abnormal, trying to find their place in the world. So that's your elevator pitch. Book opens with Lewis. He's one of our heroes. He's running from the cops. He's carrying stolen groceries. He's struggling to get away. And also at the same time, we don't know all that's going on, but the internal monologue tells us that he's trying to stay calm and maintain his self-control. He turns a corner and he, to meet this mammoth-sized guy who looks like he's made out of stone. And his name is Ray. He's one of uh, Lewis's friends. The cops come around the corner and see Ray, this giant stone guy, and start shooting at him. Another young girl shows up named Val. She's another one of our protagonists. Val shows up. And she is ticked off as she prepares to blast the cop with some sort of energy power she has. Lewis doesn't want anyone to get hurt. So he actually morphs, because, you know, back in the early 90s, morphing was the big thing. He morphs (laughs) into this giant, goopy wave, like literally a giant wave, and takes the hit. He takes Val's energy blast for the cop. He protects the cop. Then uh, Ray gets out of there quickly. He grabs Val. She's protesting the whole way. And so Val, Val and Ray are gone. Lewis oozes his way into the square, and the cops are still out there looking for him. Then we get some flashbacks. We see Lewis when he was a high school football player. He, uh, he took a really rough hit, which turned him into a puddle of black ooze right there on the field in front of everybody. Kind of ruined his social life. Ray, well, again, the big stone guy, he lived in his parents' basement his entire life. He was never allowed out of the basement for fear that someone would see him. All he had was his copy of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. His mind is very childlike, and you feel so sorry for him because he's just stuck in this basement his whole life. And he sees everything in life through the story of Huckleberry Finn. So, like, he refers to the outside world as the river. When he talks to Lewis, he calls him Huck. 
Uh, he talks about slavery, all these things from, from Huck Finn. And eventually he breaks out of his parents' house. Again, that's in the flashbacks. Another flashback, we see Val. She's in juvenile detention for setting fire to her school, and a guard attempts to sexually abuse her. Her powers flare, and we got to assume the guard is either dead or really, really injured. So we, we come back to present day, and the, these characters are now starting to congregate at this like abandoned apartment building where they're hiding out. Val is very angry. She hates being stuck with these other kids. She describes the group as a bunch of freaks. She hates her situation. She hates her power. She kind of hates herself, even. Another runaway shows up who, um, you kind of get a hint that they're going to call her sweet face. They She's don't got go a real, sweet face. She does have a sweet face. They don't go real far with it in the first issue, but we're just going to call her sweet face because that's what sticks. Anyway, another sweet face shows up. She has these prehensile tendrils that grow out of her torso. Um, get all your hentai jokes out of the way, folks, and let's move on. Uh, so all these kids are being gathered by some mystery person, and they're being told to come to this abandoned apartment building. Meanwhile, outside, the cops are still looking for them. Ray, the simplistic kind of stone guy, starts assigning superhero names to people. He calls himself Boom Boy. He calls Lewis anything. It looks like the name Sweetface is going to stick. And then all of a sudden, the window shatters, and all this junk comes flying through. They're convinced it's tear gas, but in reality, it's just this big smattering of technology. Uh, and this technology starts to cobble itself together and takes on a humanoid shape. And where the face would be is a TV, and it's a kid. And he introduces himself as Michael, and he says that he's brought everyone together. And that's where it ends. That's where we leave off. Yep. Um, the analog, the real obvious analog here is this is the classic original X-Men. Well, it's got you the know, X in it and the yeah, name. Well, it does have an X in the name. But it's the, the – you know, these people are – well, I hate to say the name freaks, but that's what they are. They're, they're freaks. freaks. They, they're they're m- mutated. Sorry for the word. But they're mutated. They're not normal. One guy you know, looks like a giant rock. Another guy turns into goop. Another girl, sweet face, can't even really be seen by normal people because she's got these tendrils. Um, Lewis turns into – you know, I already mentioned that. Anyway, so they – yeah, they're having a hard time. So your, your analog there would be classic original X-Men. And if you wanted a more modern analog, you'd probably go with, like, maybe Brian K. Vaughan's Runaways, except Runaways came after this. Right. So. What do you think of this? What do you think of number one, the book? I like how Ray looks like he's from Ellis Island. What? Ellis Island. You know, they, they have those giant stone oh. feet. You mean Easter Island? Easter Island. Ellis Island. <laughs> Ellis Island's a whole different island, buddy. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's late. Easter Island. Yeah. I like how he looks like he's... I I do find it out that he would choose the name Boom Boy, because I'm, I was thinking about... Where do you hear boom in in uh in Huck Finn? But um, <laughs> I I did I no I I liked it. It's a it's interesting how this took something like twenty four pages to do what Strangers did in twelve. You know, <laughs> but okay, but uh, but no, I I liked it. it. You one thing you have to know is I've never been the teen angsty books. Yeah, at my age, I feel like ugh, this again. But um, at the time, I thought I, I remember I was I was actually collecting this at the time, and I, and I always and I always enjoyed how the uh, how the characters interacted, and I actually liked how their names aren't that really they're not great. You know what I mean? They're yes, not, they're, they're, not, they're made up by a kid. Yeah, they're not creative at all. Um, Val becomes pressure. Oh yeah, uh, Angela Sweetface. Yep. Um, Michael, we will we'll get his name later, and it's just as kind of dopey <laughs> as everybody else's. What is it? It's plug. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. But, yeah. but uh, every yeah, it, 
it it probably feels it feels as genuine. It, it feels probably it feels sort sort of genuine if that makes sense. I I, mm-hmm. I felt like um it it really captured a lot of what it that sort of alien feeling you might get or you had as a teenager and being alienated. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Sorry, alienated. And uh, yeah, I thought I I did like this one. I um I will say this, the it. It's always sad that if I feel bad for for Ben Herrera because he has to follow White White Walt Simonson's cover. True, but great. I I liked his art. I mean, it's very <laughs> much. Um, it sort of became the house style. I thought of a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the Ultraverse books as 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 you'll probably anyone who's read them will see this sort of minimalist style that he's got going. Mm-hmm. It's um it's kind of angular. It's sort of. I would say it's very um, manga inspired or anim- probably anime inspired given the time. And uh, you'll see a lot of that look later. Well, the nice thing about it was it's that. It's clean. It's very clean. It's clean. Very exactly. It's clean. It didn't look too 90s. I mean, some of the tropes are in there, but hmm. it's not full of the crazy 90s tropes. And you, you know what it reminds me of? And you guys, everyone will probably argue with me, but it reminds me a little bit of Brian Stelfreeze. Yes. When he would actually draw a comic, and I don't mean the covers he did because he did some amazing covers, but when he would draw an actual, you know, full comic book, it sort of reminds me of that. It reminds me of this era of period of J- Jason Pearson. I don't even remember when he was doing. I think yeah. Legion around this time. Yeah, he did some Legion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very similar to that. For those okay. who, yeah, wouldn't know. Well, unlike you, I love the teenager angsty thing. I love the outcast teenagers. I love it when there's conflict amongst the group. Yes. The, the self-hatred is really interesting with the fear and everything like that. I liked how the story played out slowly. I liked the flashbacks. I thought it was really nicely done. Um, I, oh, I didn't mean that as, as, as a negative. Oh, no, you I, took a knock. You took a knock. No. You compared it to Strangers. Too. No, I said it's funny yeah. that this, this book took its time. Mm-hmm. And Strangers, you know, 12 by page 12, let's form a team. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, 25 pages of story, judging by issue number one, what would you do? Would you come back? I would. I would. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You know what? Because I, I, I it, um, probably similar to this was Generation X, right? This was kind of around the same time. Jeez. Yeah. Kind of almost, it felt, like Generation X probably felt like Freaks. I'm not sure which one came first, but. Uh, well, I, I would say this was a lot better than Generation X. So. Oh. I mean, Generation X had some amazing art and some cool characters. Yes. But I, I in general, I, I like this better. So. No, I liked it. Yeah. And this lasted was- quite, quite a while, the Freaks, mm-hmm. if I recall. Went through, and the, the team com- composition changed a little bit too. They introduced a whole bunch of other kids that came in and stuff like that. Right. So. But you don't know that yet, Jack. Right, right. right. Cause it's still 1993. So, <laughs> and I have, and I that's a book my... you love. I love Freaks. So I have a feeling you're just going to love the next book we talk about. You know what? The next book we talk about is very interesting. It has an X in it, it has, it has two E's in it. In it. <laughs> Sure. Uh, but it's not called Freaks. It's called Exiles, number one. Some of you may be scratching your head going, well, wait a minute. Isn't that that book Judd Winnick wrote for Marvel? It kind of is. It kind of is, yeah. So, all right. You'd be right Exiles. and you'd be wrong. You'd be right and wrong. <laughs> uh, writers. Okay. Check this out. Hold on. Writers. Sure. That's plural? Right. It's very plural, actually. Uh, I'm going to bring this up so I can look at it at the same time. Uh, writers are Steve Gerber, Tom Mason, Dave Ulbrich, and Chris Olm. All of them are listed as writers. Uh, you've got Paul Pelletier, Paul Pelletier as the penciler and Ken Branch as inker. 
and um, Chris Ulm was the editor at the time. So, before, oh, by the way, the character design, the cover's done by Derek Robertson, uh, which I'll talk Solid. about in a bit. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the character designs are at least, at least, um, was it Mustang? I don't know. One of the guys, at least one of the guys' characters designed was by Marat Michaels. It's possible okay. that multiple characters were done by different, different people. I don't know. But at least I know one of the characters in this, um, yeah, it's Mustang, was at least done by um, Marat Michaels. So here we go. Uh, before I recap the story, I want to share an observation. I have now read this comic three times in preparation for this podcast. And I think I finally get it. I think I, I think a light bulb finally went off today with me. Why they're exiles? Not why they're exiles. What this book actually was. So you ready? Yes. I think this comic was a gag. I think it was a parody, a very elaborate parody and joke. And uh, now a lot of people know how this comic ended. The, this series, you know, it was at the Ultraverse launch. It got a lot of promotion and everything. But the series ended with the fourth issue. And it, it ended with most of the characters dying. And this was apparently planned all along. This wasn't just a, a change direction thing. Wait they knew from minute. the What's that? Yeah. They knew from the start they were going to kill these characters, right? What, am I, am I not supposed to talk about the future? I'm only no. supposed to talk about issue number one? No, I'm kidding. Okay. okay. Um, sorry, spoilers. Anyway, and, and 20 years later. <laughs> so what's pretty cool is to maintain the surprise, Malibu even solicited issues like five and six. So when the fans went to go read and four just ended, they were shocked. You know, it hadn't been spoiled for them. So a lot of people already know that, okay? But there's more, which is what's led me to my theory that this, this comic is a gag. Now, by the way, if, if any of the folks who wrote this comic, you know, are, are listening and I've totally got it wrong, I apologize. This is just Shag's theory. Shag has lots of theories. I'm usually wrong about everything. So Dealey Plaza is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the creative team on this issue, which we already covered, is exactly the same as the creative team on Malibu's X-Mutants, just with the addition of Steve Gerber. Again, you know. Tom Mason, oh, Dave Ulbricht, Chris Ohm, Paul Pelletier, Ken Branch, all the same people who did X-Mutants. Now, doing a little bit of research, and I remember X-Mutants, we used to sell it, but I never I never read it. Right. So I did a little research on X-Mutants, and apparently that book started as a parody of the X-Men. It did, Ron but, Lim and uh, Chris Ohm, I think. I think you're right. I, Ron Lim, I saw Ron Lim's name attached to it. But it sort of grew into its own thing. So, okay, tuck that in the back of your mind. X-Mutants was a parody of X-Men. Same creative team doing this book. The name of the book is Exiles. It's right there. There's an X in it. In fact, the original promotion, which is um, in this book I was mentioning earlier, this, this promotional book, has a full-page ad for Exiles. And it's a different logo. This logo is the world Exiles, but the X is massive. Okay. In fact, I'm going to read you the promo text for the Ultraverse um, Exiles story, but I'm going to sort of like through all the names and stuff. Just bear with me. Imagine perhaps some of Marvel's X-Men character names in here instead. All right. So, united by uh, which transformed them into ultra-humans, eight misfits band together as the exiles. Under the leadership of the brilliant, they set out to find and protect others of their kind. Unfortunately for the exiles, the evil has recruiting plans of his own. And if the exiles must die in the process, so be it. Outcasts in their own world. The exiles fight a desperate battle to accomplish the most impossible feat of all, to save themselves from mankind and save mankind from itself. Huh. That's the X-Men, dude. I'm not sure about that. 
oh, whatever. <laughs> and then, uh, so I really feel like what this entire series was, was them poking fun at the 90s X-Men franchise. And then killing them to kind of share their feelings on Well, the fact that it took four writers makes me think that this must be a super heavy, dense book. But is it really? That it's going to be, I don't know, 48 pages. But it, now that you've read it, is it really a super dense book? No. Okay, exactly. I mean, we're showing our hand before we recap it, but that I I think there's more going on here than we know. And if I'm mistaken, I just insulted four very nice people, so I'm sorry. This might have been their life's work. You know what I mean? It could be. This could be their magnus opus right here, and I'm just a total asshat. So. All right, so the cover uh, we mentioned is by Derek Robinson, and I love Derek Robinson, but I think this cover, again, Robertson. Robertson, thank you. Um, I've always said that wrong. Anyway, this cover, I think he's trying to ape like Mark Texiera or Javier Salteres. Uh, the line is dirtier than his than it usually is, right? It's exactly. kind of sl- not uh, sketchier, I should say. Right. I yeah. think he's purposefully trying to ape like a Texiera, somebody who was doing Marvel stuff at the time. So, here here's the the quick synopsis. There is an ultra battle which suddenly breaks out at a suburban high school. The exiles are battering battling. Get it? The Sinister Supreme Soviet, and that's his name, and the Cybernoids. Both groups are uh, are seeking this high school student named Amber Hunt, who's a spoiled little rich girl. The exiles are represented by Trax, Tinsel, and Deadeye. Just to give you an idea how 90s we're talking here, Deadeye has a white mohawk. The whole right side of his face is cybernetic, including an eye. He's got giant gun. He's got pouches. He's got bandoliers. Totally not. He looks like Cable to some extent. You know, totally 90s. Goatee. The Exiles win the fight, but not before Trax is seriously hurt. And then they take Amber with them against her will. Amber is taken to their headquarters, the Stronghold, where we meet Dr. Rachel Deming, who's a brilliant biochemist and their leader, uh, along with Ghoul, who is a zombie and eventually would go on to be an Ultra Force member. Trax is still recovering from this injury, but then he ends up making a pass at one of the ladies who works there. And, uh, by the way, all the women are wearing incredibly inappropriately tight uniforms. So, uh, Elsewhere, we meet the evil Malcolm Court, who has hired the sinister Supreme Soviet. I love that name. Sinister Supreme Soviet. I'm just going to keep saying it over and over. And he, he, so he hired that guy who lost the fight. So he punishes the Soviet for his failure by conducting experiments on him and ultimately killing him. Now, a second exile team we see of Mustang and Catapult are protecting, uh, <laughs> you know, of these names. They're protecting and trying to grab another teenager named Timothy Halloran. They battle more of Court's goons, uh, this time Bloodbath and Brute. Give you an idea on some of the looks here. Spiked how, how, shoulder pads. How do you spell what? Brute? It's B-R-U-U-T. Creative spelling. <laughs> uh, spiked shoulder pads, ponytails, big guns, crazy muscles. The fight turns ugly, and unfortunately, both Brute and Timothy's mother are killed. And uh, Plus, Bloodbath got away with Timothy. And so, um, we find out in the issue... That's how the issue ends, by the way. But we find out the gimmick sort of in the in the story is that apparently Amber and Timothy are both what's called potentials. Um, they require, they're going to require a special treatment to save their lives, because they've been infected with something called the Theta virus. And untreated, this virus will kill them. But with proper treatment, it will save them and possibly grant them superpowers. Which is probably what will happen. I'm thinking it might. So. Um, okay. So, again, I, I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm taking the Mickey out of this book pretty hardcore, but I think I get it. I think I'm supposed to be. I think I'm not supposed to take this thing seriously. Again, I could be wrong. But the art by Paul T- Pelletier and Ken Branch, um, Paul, at this time in history, was really known 
for doing like superhero cheesecake art, like an X Mutants. And I gotta say, I loved it. It I, looked I, very I, Dale Keown to me. I, I don't know. It looked like Paul's faces were so recognizable back then. I don't know. Maybe if that was more Ken Branch's influence. I don't know because it looks very different than Paul's stuff nowadays. Yes. Um, and I, I, I know I, I we review a comic book that Paul does now. Um, what, where, where do you do that? Well, I'll talk about it at the end. Anyway, I, I I'll just put it out there. I love Paul and Ken's Sixty Women in the nineties. Ooh, I did. They were just gorgeous. And um, Doctor Rachel Dem- Deming, I, she looks the face of a fifty-year-old, but the body of a twenty-two. You know? Oh yeah, you can bounce a quarter off all that. Um, they're just hot as hell. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You know, um, there's a lot of discussion nowadays um, about the treatment of women in comics. And boy, if those, those if those young ladies got a hold of this comic, I think there would be a lot of blog posts. I'm just saying. So um, most of uh, most of the nineties. This is probably the most 90s comic that we're going to cover in this episode. Because there's a guy named Hot Rocks who spells his name R-O-X-X. I totally forgot to mention the bad guy's names. <laughs> um, but it's, as I said, it's probably the most 90s of them. But again, because I think this comic is a bit of a gag or a parody, it gets a pass. So, uh, okay. I, I've talked a lot. What do you think of this comic? I thought it was, I thought it was a nice sort of look at, at the, what at the time were Soviet-U.S. relations. <laughs> You're so full of shit. <laughs> and it was I'm serious it, it was very evocative of uh, of um, I don't know if you read a lot of Camus but um, certainly uh, Amber Hunt reminded me a lot of the, ty- the the character in The Stranger so I was so I don't know what you read you're, you're talking to yourself at this point I don't no know what idea what you're talking about no, okay. no it was it was uh, you know <laughs> I forgot I read this after reading <laughs> no I'm kidding no um because I knew the gimmick, right? I knew that, from what I understand about the Exiles, is the concept behind it is just to show we're willing to, we're, you're going to see a team die without knowing they're going to die, because that's the sort of stuff that can happen in the in the Malibu Ultraverse. Right. It was all but gimmick-based. So I it, think there's more to it. Well, I think it's them making fun of X-Men at the same time. That's right. Okay. That could be it, too. But it, I, it just, it really colored my reading of it, knowing, knowing that. Do you know what I mean? So it, mm-hmm. it, it was hard to, to not think about it. Um, but yeah, it, it, it worked. I mean, it filled the stands with the, with the book. Um, I loved the Pelletier's art as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, what I would love to know if he knew that, like, <laughs> like three months down the line, it would be. Oh, by the way, no, there's no five. Well, he didn't draw number four. I, I don't. I don't. I haven't read the other issues. I just oh. flipped to number four to see how it ended, and uh, he didn't draw number four. I know that much. So, in fact, the writing team had changed a bit by then too. And to think that Ghoul would be the guy that makes it. You know what I mean? That's out of left field. I mean, <laughs> Ghoul and Ultra Force is just a whole head scratcher. And then Amber knows. Hunt, of course, she goes on to be a whole other thing. And, um, who does she go on to be? Um, she. I think she becomes sort of. I think when when uh, after Marvel buys them out. She's a big part of the Phoenix Resurrection or something yeah. like that. I think she becomes the Phoenix. Yeah. And then Marvel goes on to do a whole bunch of Exiles. I don't know that Marvel got the joke about Exiles being making fun of X-Men. Because they made an X-Book called Exiles. Well, then, they, yeah, right. Well, then what, well, then they mar- Marvelized it or whatever when they brought uh, Juggernaut. Well, anyway, that's that's all later. You gotta, you got to say it right. Juggernaut bitch. Juggernaut bitch. What's I'm that? Juggernaut bitch. So, um, I, actually, I think I got it wrong, too. It's something I don't know like, what that is. You don't know that was a whole meme thing. Yeah. Oh, 
And I think I got the line a little bit wrong anyway. It doesn't matter. So, 28 pages of story. Judging issue number one by itself. One page of story. Let's be honest. <laughs> Would you buy number two? Yeah. Okay. Um, if it's Paul Pelletier. If I had gotten the joke at the time, I may have loved it. But since I didn't get the joke... I would not have picked up the subsequent issues unless I wanted to look at more Pelletier's cheesecake art, which I do really enjoy looking at. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Exiles. So our next book is Mantra? Or no, Mantra? No. I don't know. What do you say? What do you call well, it? Well, I, I say Mantra, but I guess I hadn't thought about it. I guess it could be Mantra. I mean, Mantra is definitely a, an expression. I, I don't know. When, when you have, a, I guess, a statement that you repeat over and over again, you would say, what's your... Mantra. Mantra. Yeah. Well, this one might be mantra, and we'll figure okay. out. We'll find out later why. Uh, so. Uh, oh, you, the man thing. Yes. Man, well, not man thing, but man. That's clever. <laughs> man, man thing man is next tra. week. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Gerber. Yeah. Uh, mantra. Okay. Mantra. That makes it. You know, it's it's um it's got layers. It's like an onion. You know. Right. <clears throat> so uh, mantra, I I I, I kind of refer to as all of me, the comic book. And uh, that's, that's the Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin movie. Um, yeah. It's written by Mike W. Barr. Mm-hmm. And it's penciled by uh, Terry Dodson in what I think might be some of his earliest comic comic work, his professional Definitely. comic work. You don't quite see um, the Terry – you don't see anything near to what the Terry Dodson is today, but you definitely see the, the seeds. It's uh, still sexy. Oh, that, that's what I mean. It's, it's a very – we can talk about that later, but the sexuality element or the sexiness of, of Mantra is, is, I think, kind of what makes this book work. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll go on into that later. Um, Mantra is designed by Adam Hughes, and when you mm-hmm. see the character, you will understand what that means and and why he why of all the artists at the time he was probably chosen to do it. So uh, when the book opens, we're, we're introduced to this character named Lucas, L-U-C-A-S-Z. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but in keeping with the, the title, the book title, <laughs> pronunciations are kind of up in the air. Um, he's not a good guy, Shag. He's, uh, he's a bit no, of, he's a bastard. He's kind of a jerk. Um, but it's not his fault, I would say. Uh, so anyway, he we find out that he's giving this lady the this lady and uh, her child the heave ho. Yep. Um, he doesn't want anything to do with them. He wants to make sure they're financially secure. But uh, what he, what, one thing that he definitely uh, drives home is that this, is, this isn't his family. This is this, this the, these two people belong to this body, to this body, which is kind of a strange thing, and we'll learn why later. So he goes out, and he's been tasked to recover a mask from this guy named Mister Notch. Mister Notch is, uh, is. Is, is Lucas's equivalent in this great battle that we'll learn about shortly. Um, he's killed. Lukash is killed. So in the, in, in, the, in the first ten pages, we find out – actually, first five pages, we find out the main character of this book is, is killed. But then he wakes up, and we find out what his deal is. He can reincarnate himself into a different person's body. But what he does is he ends up taking over the, the person's body, but their soul is – is is uh is evacuated, kicked so, to the curb. Right. So this guy he he treats bodies like guns. You know what I mean. So he he's been at this for about fifteen hundred years, um, dozens of uh, of reincarnations. So he he just sees the body as the weapon, mm-hmm. and his soul is is he is his soul, and it's just going to keep popping up. And um, 
so he's got this band of warriors that he works with. Mr. Notch has his own band of, of warriors. And um, they fight again. And Lukaj is killed once again. <laughs> These guys just can't stay alive. He can't. And But then a weird thing happens, Shag. Lukaj wakes up next to a man. Uh-oh. Right. Is he, what would be your immediate thought if you wake up next to a man? What did I do last night? And? <laughs> you know, he, he he asked himself, oh my gosh, is my new body gay? It's my new, which is a weird question, right? Is my new right. body gay? But he looks in the mirror. He's he's now inhabiting the body of this gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Rendered gorgeously by Terry Dodson. And this throws Lukash for a loop. Now he doesn't know what to do. Because this is not... This was never part of the plan. He he is reincarnated in di- in a different male body every time. He ends up um, in his soul, and and uh, his last body was killed by this assassin named Morris Strike, who's who's who you find who who was the other character on the cover of the book. Um, Lukash then, as as Eden, receives a chain charm from this ally of bone of of Archimage, Archimage being the the uh, the warrior that I'm sorry the warrior the wizard that he's working with that, the great and powerful wizard the great and powerful wizard <laughs> that tells that tells um, Lukaj that this was his plan all along that, that what what's happened in the battle with Boneyard is um, Archimedes people have been losing this this battle because they Boneyard uses magic Archimedes people use use technology they use weapons um, Mister Notch and Lukaj have been pretty much mortal enemies forever. He gets the better of them. And this is the one way that, that, uh, that Archimage finds that he could get a leg up on, on Boneyard. So then, so then we find out that Lukash has his new female body. He doesn't know how to adjust to it. He can't walk. The center of gravity is all wrong. Um, he finds himself being sexually harassed. He doesn't, <laughs> uh, he, he gets hit on. He doesn't really know how to, how to be a woman let alone how to be a sorcerer slash sorceress. Right. And, uh, and then he finds out even more things. And, uh, to complicate things even more, he's a single mom with a, with a son and a daughter. And then, and then just as, as – and, you, and, if you and if you don't think that's bad enough, who arrives at the door who seems to know everything because he's got a limited psychic ability, but Warstrike, and uh, it seems like Warstrike's the one who's got all the answers. Dun, dun, dun. And then we're out. That's the yep. book. Did I get everything? Because yeah, is, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a massive. It's a massive. It's a fantasy story done in modern day. It's a massive battle between Archmage and Boneyard, and it, we focus on their minions. You know, Mister Notch and Lucas. It's about the soldiers. Yeah, it's about the soldiers, and um, you know, and Lucas. Is, it looks like he's the last one now in the body of this woman. So, obviously, this is one of your favorite books. You know, we know that. It, it's an incredibly dense story. Like, I was really surprised. I'll tell you my first impression. Like, back in the 90s when this thing was coming out, um, I didn't like it. I thought it was basically just a, a story of a guy in the body of a woman, of a really sexy woman. And I thought that was just a gimmick they were using as an exploitation technique to sell comics with a hot girl on the cover. I think that's that's the lure. Sure. But I just thought, like, how cheap is that? You still want to write a comic about a guy, because you know that's what guys like to read. But you're going to use a hot chick to do it. I just, I, I thought it was a cheap tactic at the time. 
and I don't know if I actually read any of the issues. I just think I just passed judgment. Now, reading this issue for this podcast has really changed my mind. There's a real story here. Um, I'm not usually a fan of sword and sorcery stuff. It's not my fantasy is not my thing. However, I do sometimes enjoy fantasy set in modern day, kind of like you know Highlander or the Dresden Files or whatever. And this works. Pretty this is like well. Highlander. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit is yeah, and it works really well in that format. So. As far as you know, my original opinion about them just exploiting the female stuff, you know, it, it would kind of depend on subsequent issues on how they handle the sex cells kind of angle. Um, now, here's a question for you, and, and I don't know that you necessarily have an answer, but I, I'm I'm not an educated man, you know, but um, I don't really know enough to know if this story about a man in a woman's body, I, I don't really know if that is sexist or not, or if it's well constructed. I, I don't. I, I'm not both. informed. No. I would say but, it's both. It dances the. It dances. Okay. Well, I I liked the lines about him having trouble with the center of gravity. What's with these breasts? Guys checking her out. You know, the, she she was happy that the costume had flat heels. I mean, these are all things that I thought were pretty cool. But you know, we'd have to ask someone who's a little more impartial, I guess, to look at this and you know, holistically and go, "Oh no, that the whole thing's sexist," or "Oh no, it works." You know, whatever. Well, I I think. Um... I have to say that the reason this, this, the, I would say this is probably the most daring and um, imaginative of, of the books that we've we've talked about tonight. Yeah, um, maybe so. Um, it's I can't really think of of anything like it. it, it when, we, when we talk about the the analogs, there isn't really isn't one to this book, right? I mean, there's sort. Go ahead. No, there's sword and sorcery books, right? And then, but, and then. There really, I, I can't think of anything where you have a man in a woman's body, the soul of a man in a woman's body. I mean, I, I keep hovering around like a, a, a Doctor Strange Wonder Woman mashup, maybe. You know? Okay. I, I don't yeah. know. That's that's the best I can get. But it's neither those, right? I yeah, mean, it's neither one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my, I, I've, I've kind of had this theory that I mean, do you remember the Crying Game? I'm familiar with it. I've never seen it, but everyone's pulled you, the ending for me. So. You kind of lived it, maybe. Anyway, they, oh, good God! There, uh, no, no, it. That that movie came out, I think, about this time. Probably. About this time, and I think, I think before that, and I think it might have influenced just kind of the the idea behind this book. Mm-hmm. And um, as it progresses, mantra or mantra, however you want to say it, and Lu- and Lucas definitely become. They, they they never really can they never really gel as a as a person. There's okay, just, so he's he still struggles being a woman. He does, and there's there's a twist that happens much later in the run, right before it ends, that uh, before Marvel takes over the title and completely changes it, that um, that, that that kind of puts an interesting spin on it. Okay, it never ends it, but I I would always say that this always had. The problem with with this book, with with the premise of this book, is I think once you get over the conceit, you know what I mean. Once he be, once he deals with being mantra, mm-hmm. there's not a lot left for him to do. Okay. So the personal struggle is what I think is the most interesting thing in the entire book, and and that and and you finally have a guy who's tried to try to. Um, remove any sense of, of responsibilities that he's had to any of the bodies he's inhabited. And mm-hmm. now, because this is it, this is, this, this is the last stop for him as far as he knows. Uh, now he's got two kids. 
He's got to be a woman. What does that mean? How do, does does he lead his life as a woman? Does mm-hmm. he lead his life as a as a I guess what would be a gay woman? Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's no. It's, okay. So yeah. yeah. It, it, I thought it was interesting. I I will say I, that's one aspect that interests me about the potential of the book because Lucas's attitude towards family really bothered me. Because you're um, a family man. Because I'm a family man. So I'm not saying it wasn't good to have it in the book. I'm not saying it was interesting. It just it did its job. I mean, Mike W. Barr wrote it very effectively. It was supposed to get under your skin that he treated family horribly, and it worked. Congratulations, Mr. Barr. You succeeded. Um, and I was interested to see how he, she would grow in subsequent issues with Eden's family. So that, you know, it was compelling. So it made me wonder. It does. I mean, the, the family thing definitely takes a, it's always a big, a big part of the, of the mantra or mantra's adventures. Uh, the only thing I was left wondering was about Warstrike. You know, he's. What about like, him? Well, at like one point he's smelling the rose. Then he's unhappy with having to kill Archmage's leader, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously he's on the cover, so he's going to be a good guy. I don't know. I, All right. He, uh, what did he do? He emptied, he was, he was like target practicing in his hotel room or something. And he was firing at a vase, but hit everything around it but the rose. I think it's something, that. something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's when he was called on an old phone with a, uh, with a cord attached to the handle. <laughs> by Notch to take care of of uh, Lukaj, Lukat, whatever his name is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he because I mean, um, he does eventually get his own book. Okay, so good guy, I guess. All right. So twenty eight pages of story. Yeah. Um. Obviously, we know you loved it. Uh, I liked judging, it a lot. Yeah. Judging issue number one just by itself. Um. I have to say. Oh. I think it, I think it was very compelling. Ah. I, think would, I think it would make you return for subsequent issues. You would read you would read issue two. Yes, absolutely. So I, I would say this one was definitely a win. Were you confused by the cover as I was? Um, you know, it's interesting that they went with that cover, whereas Adam Hughes designed the characters, Terry Dodson did the interiors. Either one of them would have been a smarter move for the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they figured yeah, his um I guess they figured, you know, the, the artist on the cover was a better sell because he maybe he was known better at the time, but I don't know. So, yeah. All right. So that's, All right. so that's this week's, uh, batch. Yeah. So we, you know, uh, next time we're going to talk about firearm, prototype, yeah. solution, nightman, sludge, and solitaire. And there are some damn good books in that list of titles I just named off. Right. Now there in were, in one, not so much. Right. Now there were other, obviously there were other number ones that followed, but these were the first, I guess, first six months of all givers. Exactly right. So, So. all right. Well, um, until next time, folks, definitely come back to the Ultraverse Network. You're going to, again, you'll hear the Nightman podcast. You'll hear a solitaire podcast. We'll be back in a few weeks. You can send your emails, uh, send us messages at Ultraverse Network. At gmail.com. This is all one phrase. Ultraverse Network at gmail.com. Or you can put comments on the blog. And what's the uh, website for the blog? I believe that is ultraversepodcast.com. There it is. Yep. Bingo. You got it. So, David, in the meantime, is, uh, is where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at DM Gutierrez. That's uh, D-M-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z. No one's going to figure that out. Yeah, or they can find you, and then just... <laughs> <laughs> And I'll direct them to you. 
Or I'm on the Ultraverse. I'm on the Ultraverse Facebook page. There you go. Uh, yeah. You can find me at um, primarily would be a, a website I do called Firestorm Fan. So that's FirestormFan.com. You can also uh, find me under the same handle, Firestorm Fan, on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, and Instagram. Also, please check out the Fire and Water podcast. That's another podcast I co-host with. A co-host is actually interesting. And uh, that podcast covers, uh, oddly enough, Firestorm and Aquaman. You know, so you think Ultraverse is niche. Oof, okay. Um, we talk about Firestorm and Aquaman every week, so you can check that out at the Fire and Water Podcast. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to toot your horn a little. You do, uh, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by not mentioning what is, to me, my, my favorite shows from your Fire and Water Podcast, the who, where you cover the entirety of Who's Who, of DC's Who's Who. Yep. Uh, with, um, I forget his name. And, uh, and you <laughs> also. Rob t- Kelly. Uh, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and then you also do, uh, recently, wh- whatever happened to, or where are they now? Yep. Uh, what, what, whatever happened to, it's the little backup stories from DC Comics. Yeah, Christmas. those are fantastic. Those are just fantastic. It's, uh, apparently I just can't find enough niches to need to be filled. This is where I keep ending up in weird places. Well, so. I, I I guess we should talk about this right now before we go. Uh, we have a Techno Comics podcast coming up. Oh, you're so full of crap. We're going to start with, um, <laughs> I think it's uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry's Lost Universe, and then that'll spin off into Gene Roddenberry's Xander of Lost Universe. Um, Mike Danger. I know you're a big Mike Danger fan. Oh, yeah. Well, Primordials is my jam, brother. Primordial? <laughs> you know, they had novels. I mean, they, they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's yeah. a joke that you're just burying into the ground there. Okay. Anyway, folks, we love the Ultraverse. You love the Ultraverse. Otherwise, you wouldn't have hung on this, what, almost two hours of podcasting. <laughs> you stay ultra, kids. We'll come up with some catchphrase, something or sooner or later. <laughs> Was it jump on, jump on now or whatever? Jump on now. Jump on now? All right. This is the prime of our lives. There we go. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. I'm not saying I don't trust you. I never felt this way before. Yes, I swear it's the truth. And I owe it all to Malibu. How's that? That's our outro right there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Promise I'm not not recording. No, it's not. I can't use it against you. That's a B-side. Because I ever heard one. All right. All right.